You're listening to the Ship Bob Operator Series. Each week, your host, Casey Armstrong, e-com veteran, is joined by founders, operators, and insiders who are bringing along their stories and data to give you the exclusive inside scoop and tactics from those who have been there, done it, and gotten their hands dirty. You can tune in for a live recording Wednesdays. Head to operators.shipbob.com for the details. But until then, enjoy this audio replay. Hello, welcome everybody back for episode 12 of our operator series. This is uh, the second time we've done it with VCs. As you will see, the person to, I don't know where they have us configured, right, left, top, bottom. It's uh, not Webb Smith. He had some uh, last minute travel complications, unfortunately. But great news for us, we have uh, Michael Lee of Lee Commerce Ventures joining us. So huge thanks to him for joining us uh, with very little notice. Seems like all rules are out the window. I know a couple episodes ago, you guys heard some pretty crazy drilling in my house in the middle of some questions. So we had to hit pause for that. But as always, you know, the the show goes on. And so I'm extremely excited about this one. I've known Michael for a while now. He's actually comes out also, he, he just actually started Lee Commerce Ventures, came prior to, uh, from FJ Labs, which is also a very early investor in ShipBob. I'll give some more background on him in a minute, but we also are, this is the first time we're doing what we're calling uh, the pitch. And so we have a very brave soul in uh, Yulitsa Jean Charles, who will be joining us on stage pretty shortly to share her story and, you know, get some feedback and go back and forth with, with Michael. And uh, I think it'll be very exciting for, I'm very excited to watch it myself and, you know, have the audience participate as well, and then open it up to Q and A as always. And just like we start these every time, please drop in the chat whichever direction that is. Let's see where, where everybody's dialing in from. Um, as usual, I am here uh, in Southern California. And let's see, we got Nick and Cape Cod. Uh, just got back up from UNC area. And so I'm going to tease in Michael because I know he is in and around that area right now. Yeah, Michael, you want to tell everybody uh, actually where you're, because I know you're usually based in New York. Tell everybody where you're dialing in from uh, this time. <laughs> So I, I do live in New York. That's where Lee Commerce Ventures is headquartered, but decided to come down and see my family who's still based in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, which is the hometown of the University of North Carolina, and uh, looked up an Airbnb to self-quarantine myself for about a week before I meet my parents and, uh, and, and my sister and all. And uh, the only one I could find was a, an old sorority house that is uh, painted pink nearby campus that sleeps uh, at least 13 and I'm the only one here. So it's certainly been interesting these last couple of nights. And um, it's quite a large place, but I uh, have it all to myself. <laughs> That's awesome. So there we go. Michael's dialing in from a sorority house that he found on uh, Airbnb. So just run through some of this. Let's see. We have Salt Lake City, Chicago, SF, Austin, Montreal, Panama. As always, we have people coming in from bunch of different countries. So I'm excited about that. And so a little bit more background on on Michael. So actually, other than his former, you know, the last VC firm that he worked at before founding Lee Commerce Ventures with FJ Labs, he and I actually run a couple events before we did one at their New York headquarters with Thursday Bootco and Piper Y, who was on this as well, and in Hawthorne. And he invests in both e-commerce technology and infrastructure and D2C brands. So he's invested in some very well-known brands like Verb Energy, who is a, a ShipBob customer and will be giving away, whoever asks the most questions will be giving away some Verb Energy bars. And if there are 
any Healthy Roots dolls still available, we'll actually give one away there. So somebody can give that to their daughter or niece or, or another loved one. And some other brands like KitchenMate and Flaviar and maybe some little known companies you've all heard of like Slack and SeatGeek and Postmates. So enough from me. I would love to jump in with Michael and we'll kick it off with the first question from me. And then as always, everybody, please chime in and ask away. So Michael, you, you've been investing for a while and I'd love to know, is, is there like an investment that stands out to you? Well, I guess first, please share a little bit of like how you got into the investing scene. Uh, and then I guess I'll come with some hitting questions. Sure. So my life in any category has never been linear, except for my path into venture capital. I began as an investor straight out of undergrad, graduated University of North Carolina with a major in finance and started my career at a firm called Truebridge Capital Partners, where we managed about $4 billion in assets and not only invested in other venture capital managers, but also in growth stage businesses, Series C and later. And as that progressed in a couple of great years doing growth stage deals, got interested in early stage, as one does, and uh, was recruited by Fabrice to join him up in New York three years and change ago. And that was a fantastic experience. And just the natural progression of my career, decided to spin off Q3 2019 to launch my own effort, Lee Commerce Ventures, uh, my career up until now. That's awesome. And, 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 you know, big congrats on that. I know it's a, it's always a, a bold step to launch something on your own. And a lot of people in the audience can relate to that, you know, founders and, and people, uh, entrepreneurs starting things on their own. And here I see in the chat, Ulitsa chiming in. Uh, no, there is none available. I think those are coming maybe later this year. And so again, she can, she'll be able to share a, a lot more there as, you know, she's seen volume and demand release, you know, spike lately. And so, again, you've been investing for a while. You've been involved in some very interesting opportunities. Like I mentioned, uh, you know, these aren't necessarily D2C, but with like Slack and Postmates, some, you know, household name brands. Is there an investment that you were very bullish on that generated a lot of controversy internally or debate internally that you guys eventually pulled the trigger on? Well, the thing about FJ Labs is, um, you know, we've got a lot of talented minds sitting around the investment table. And so... You know, typically, if there are investment ideas that uh, just kind of don't fit the bill or our investment uh, focus or for any given reason, it tends to get, you know, voted off the table. However, there certainly have been not ones that I've certainly been a part of, but there have been certainly in things such as gaming, um, certainly in things such as alcohol brands, etc. Speaking of how something gets approved or maybe voted off, you know, let's just say with FJ and as much as you can share there, or maybe how you plan on approaching it at Lee Commerce Ventures is when a partner or an associate introduces a deal, how do you all evaluate that? And then how does it move on to, you know, the next step? Sure. So with Lee Commerce Ventures, it's essentially a one-man shop. It's just myself evaluating deals and, and putting my capital partner's money to work. In terms of my evaluation process, it's actually very streamlined. And that's one thing I made sure to uh, put in place when starting my own effort. Raising capital from the POV of a founder can be a giant waste of time sometimes. Um, you're chasing cold leads. Capitalists are slow to respond. You have to chase down responses, get proper feedback, which you don't ever uh, typically get. And so I made sure to not only sympathize with the founders that are trying to raise this capital, but also put in place a very efficient diligence process. So I can typically get to a soft commitment or a no in two weeks or less. And I certainly pride myself on that. It gets much more intensive when you're laying around different diligence processes and looking at many deals at the same time. 
but I, I try to keep it to two weeks. And the way I do that is not only invest in businesses that I understand, business models that I'm familiar with and have a track record of investing in, but also just asking, asking them important questions, asking them early and doing the work quickly on the second half of it. But it's, it's something that I, I, I truly, truly believe in, running a very fast, efficient diligence process, being friendly throughout the entire thing and, um, and being transparent. That's great. And actually something that's somewhat counterintuitive or maybe obvious to some of you that maybe we can expand on a little bit there, Michael, you touched on is getting to a no. And so I know First Round Capital um, shared some some data earlier this year. They're, they're a large VC fund out there around their speed through diligence and their speed to getting to a no and how that was something they really hung their hat on. And so here you mentioned, you know, getting at least like a soft commit or getting to a no. If you want to maybe just expand a little bit on why, why it's important to get a no, because I know a lot of founders, especially first-time founders, and I've, I've done this multiple times where you're like, well, let's just, I'll, I'll take a maybe and keep the door open a little bit. And then you have kind of always this like false hope. So maybe just talk there about the importance of trying to get to like a hard yes or a hard no as quick as possible. Right. So I learned how to in early stage companies uh, from Fabrice Grinda at FJ Labs. And he traditionally had a very alternative process in place. I mean, first and foremost, we at FJ Labs used to respond to every single old outreach or inbound that we received. Shoot, looks like we got him frozen for a minute. So I guess that was inevitable to happen at some point. We haven't had that yet. Sorry about that, everyone. All good. As I was saying, in terms of getting to a no uh, with Lee Commerce Ventures, I essentially emulate that uh, inclusive process that we had at FJ Labs in terms of every person who reaches out attempting to raise capital and at least provide them with a transparent answer quickly, as well as reasons supporting our decision. And that has uh, truly been um, great um, for especially first-time founders that are just starting out that want just some sort of clarity around what they're doing right and what they're doing wrong. And so that's something I, I totally uh, intend to carry on, um, you know, as I build out e-commerce ventures. That's awesome. And so I know a lot of these founders, you know, when they're, when they're pitching, they're really exposing themselves a lot and, and hoping that, you know, a, a partner such as yourself or a VC firm takes a chance on them. Is there a brand that stands out to you that, you know, maybe early on in your career, you really took a flyer on because you really believed in the team or the founder or the product and the market that really proved out and you're really proud of today? I think you, you mentioned you mentioned the best example earlier, Verb Energy. Uh, you know, I, I met uh, I met the founders who were very young, very green. It was they built the business out of their dorm rooms initially. You know, and um, they scaled the business post post college. They never really took a serious nine to five job, right? They just went straight into entrepreneurship right after. And through talking to them early on, number one, I was. I was initially the probably the most bearish person behind snack bars at FJ Labs. I mean, talk about a very saturated market. But as you got to know the team, you, know, you realized that they were not only young, but very talented. And uh, in addition, there were features about the product that were competitive in nature. And so not only um, from a health aspect, but also uh, from a branding aspect and the way they interacted with their customers using a proprietary SMS feature that allowed them to engage with their customers, transact via SMS. And it was these little pieces that you, you know, you tack onto the, the bigger picture and 
and after a while, it's not just a snack bar anymore. It's, uh, it's it becomes more of a tech driven company that has uh, kind of a, a viral ethos and brand around it. So I think that's a great example of one where initially, you know, I didn't even want to spend time on it. Another snack bar, come on. But, uh, you know, with additional time spent connecting all the data points and speaking to founders and getting to know them on a personal basis. And so <laughs> the founder will tell you, you know, when, when I first met them, I didn't want to just sit down in the board, like, you know, in, in our meeting room at FJ Labs. And something I like to do is actually, once the founder comes into the office, we'll grab a bottle of water and we'll just go for a walk. You know, and I think this uh, really helps in my process of evaluating founders and hearing the full story, but it also pulls them away from the pitch deck, from the numbers, and allows me to really have a full conversation with our guards down. And, you know, taking a walk, uh, you know, in Madison Square Park, right next to the FJ office was something I did countless number of times with founders. And it was a great way to really connect with them on a personal basis and get to the bottom of what they're building. That's awesome. Th thanks for sharing that. And my, my team always makes fun of me because I'm always snacking on them. This is not a Verb Energy commercial, by the way, but I've always got, <laughs> got them here. Again, they're protein bars plus caffeine. It's just such like a simple thing that they're kind of combining together. And the SMS, if anybody wants to, is looking into testing SMS, uh, you know, I suggest even trying out their trial pack, which I think you just pay for shipping, where it's because of their SMS and the ease of ordering is why I've bought so much because they literally will text me or I'll just randomly text them if I run out and say, please send me more. And they have my, my, my address and my payment details. And it's so easy. I don't have to log in or do anything like that. It's just a, it's just a text message. And we have our phones for better or worse on us all the time anyways. So here's a question from Ohane, another company I'm sure you're, you're proud of and, and happy to talk about. So I want to hear about Thursday Boot Co. They're an impressive e-commerce brand. Could you speak on how you met them, who approached who, how you evaluated them? Similar before, was it a tough decision? And just kind of how you approach things with the third with Thursday Bootsco. I actually met founder at um, a venture capital event. It was a tech conference uh, you know, hosted by another venture capital firm based out west. And um, yeah, we just met uh, amongst the crowd. And I had not even heard about the brand at the time. You know, this was back in 2017, I believe. And we got to talking and he told me some of the headline metrics that he was seeing uh, within the business. And at first, I thought it was too good to be true and um, you know, took another look and another look and ran a full diligence process uh, while I was at FJ Labs. And it was honestly a no-brainer. And so we were one of the largest investors in the Series A back in 2017, summer of 2017. And I tell you, some of the, you know, it's such a crowded market, such as footwear. I mean, again, it's kind of akin to Verb Energy where... We're playing in a very saturated market where it's very hard to have product differentiation uh, or competitive advantages of any kind. Thursday Boot really blew it out of the park, I think, on a couple of, of things. Number one, they were profitable in their first order, which I cannot scream loudly enough how important that is when you look at your unit economics uh, for any e-commerce business. Being profitable on their first order was huge for them. It allowed them to test new things. It allowed them to hire appropriately. It gave them the cash flow to reinvest back into the business. Additionally, with a product such as leather boots, which are you know typically seen as traditionally seen as high average order value, low order frequency products, Thursday Boot had incredible repeat purchase rates. And so all of a sudden we're seeing this product that does not run on a subscription obviously having that subscription nature to it. And even I am a case study for that. I own four or five pairs of those boots that 
I bought full price because they don't discount. Also, an additional you know feature that I, I really pride themselves that they pride themselves on on never buckling, discounting, or doing seasonal sales. And so, again, is it's not really one piece about the Thursday Boot Company business at the time in which we did the deal. It was everything combined, and of course, incredible management. I mean, the team team was fantastic. They came out of Columbia Business School. They were selling shoes out of the back of their trunks, uh, out of their cars for a little while. They ran a phenomenal Kickstarter campaign. And uh, in addition to that, I mean, I can go on. The customer service was phenomenal, and you, you read these amazing stories about you know how customer service was the one differentiating factor that set a lot of these new challenger brands apart from the incumbent brands, and it's so very much true. And so to this day, they've continued to you know, fire on all cylinders and continue to impress not only their investors, but their loyal customers in just about every category of their operations. It's interesting you mentioned the, them selling things out of the back of their car. It's, you know, it's uh, something that's been talked about quite a bit, both in the tech and the DTC space is doing things that don't scale early on. You know, there are a lot of stories of what Airbnb did. And actually, Web, Web Smith, you know, again, who's going to join us today and will we'll join in a future episode. I know he was he founded Mizzen in Maine, where they'd literally go like to every single sports team and like golf, golf apparel shop, like one by one and try to just say, hey, can we just set up like a small booth here and just sell like one product at a time? And it's doing those little things that don't scale that then ends up starting to pick up some of that momentum. I know ShipBob has some very similar stories to that as well. So Michael, something you mentioned that stood out to me is, you know, I'm sure a lot of people are like, well, you know, what are like, what's a metric or what are what's some data points that I can maybe lead with that really stand out to an investor such as you? So I guess one is, are there any that stand out to you? And, and two, maybe it's, you know, involves what you're saying with Thursday Boot Co. where they were profitable on the first order. Because what's interesting is people scale, maybe some of those channels become a little bit more saturated. But, you know, as a VC, you're going to dig beyond just the surface level metrics. So is it a way that they were able to have like a strong margin so that there was actually healthy room to scale up and down in regards to the channels that they were selling on? And if there's anything you can share with us there. Yeah, I'll open it up even broadly and say there are four things that I look at in today's consumer brands. I think there are four denominators that all successful brands in this next decade of e-commerce will exhibit. Full stop. And I look for all of these. And if I don't see one of the four or any of the four, I simply don't invest. I don't even run a full process because I think the bar is just simply that high. And I think operators attending this all around the world will, will certainly agree that um, the bar is certainly set very high. And first out of the four is competitive advantages in some way, shape, or form. Got to see them. I mean, this is, it can be in the form of IP, the form of a utility patent or something. It can be in supply chain efficiency. It could be in pricing features or product features even, just some sort of competitive advantage. The whole carbon copied mattress situation that played out horribly, that's a case study in what not to do. I would say number two uh, certainly is um, healthy unit economics. And I don't just mean strong gross margins. I mean contribution margins, taking all variable costs into account. So I encourage founders to truly audit their numbers, look deeply at them, find out which levers that they can pull within your variable costs to get you to a profitability level on your first order or soon after your first if you run a subscription model. And this is really powerful because the unit economics of an e-commerce business, is, is that's your lifeblood. And uh, most investment decisions will be made largely off of the health of your unit economics. And um, that's essentially how you scale sustainably. And so certainly looking at healthy 
profitable unit economics, which again, speaks to how well you're marketing, speaks to how well you're maintaining your cost centers, et cetera. I would say number three is certainly the infrastructure put in place or the intention to go omni-channel, both in terms of marketing as well as distribution. So I don't want to see uh, brands imitate what happened over the last decade, what I like to call e-commerce 2.0, in which you just back the truck up and pour marketing dollars into Facebook, Google, and Instagram. I mean, over the last several years at FJ Labs, evaluating hundreds and hundreds of brands, I mean, I saw, I saw businesses spend upwards of 30, 40% of their venture capital dollars raised straight. It just got, it flowed straight to Facebook and Google's bottom line. And that's just, um, it's just, it's just tough to hear. And uh, really, I mean, if, if you're spending 30, 40% of your total top line into programmatic paid advertising, you need counseling. I mean, we, we got, we got, we got to find you a hotline to call because it's just not how you sustainably grow businesses these days. And I mean, it sure is addicting. It, it really is. Um, raise more and more venture capital and just pour that into paid advertising because you convert, you convert customers quickly, but it, it's the costs are getting out of control. Um, we saw a quick dip at the beginning of COVID, but you know, costs on these channels are returning back to pre-COVID levels. I think number four, which is actually quite important to me in my process, just because I've seen how bad it's gotten, is cash efficiency and a clear path of profitability. We've seen endless examples of companies, you know, like Casper, who who go off and try to test the public markets when they've never had a single month of EBITDA black. And honestly, for some more niche consumer brand uh, product verticals, and it's okay to have you know a smaller market size, or whatever, but an amazing product. And in those cases, look, which are the majority of cases, I'd say don't raise more than a Series A. You know, after that, I think it's just uh, it's it's more harm than help. And so. I want to see cash efficiency. I want you. I want to see the founder put the capital that they raise into long-term benefits in terms of hiring great people and more things around things that are not just uh, transactional in nature, like advertising costs. But also, again, path of profitability. Even if you do need to raise capital to speed up growth at any point in time, you can do so with much better leverage in negotiating power if you are profitable. And so. Being profitable, which really is a function of all the other things that I mentioned, really allows you to control your destiny. So highly, highly uh, encourage any founders out there to you know, try to bootstrap the business early on and always have profitability in mind. And really keep in mind, get it tattooed on your wrist if you have to, that revenues are not the same as profits. And um, it'll just benefit you in, in, in so many ways as you scale your business. Perfect. Thanks, Michael. And so... Just to repeat those quickly, let's see, competitor advantages like IP and patents, healthy unit economics, marketing and distribution differentiators, aka don't send all your money to Facebook and Google, uh, and then cash efficiency and path to profitability. And so we're almost at 30 minutes past the hour, I'd say past a certain hour, but people are calling in from from all over. And I'm I'm really excited to get Yulitz on stage. And so we'll ask one more question from the audience and then and then we'll welcome here on welcome her on here. So Here's a question from, from Fabio, and, and you kind of touched on this already, but I'm not sure if there's anything else you want to add. But what are the most common mistakes you see made by D2C brands raising, raising venture capital? Well, there are quite a few. I think first and foremost, there are a lot of founders who don't do enough quality research around who their true customer base is. And so they end up maybe launching a product that could be fantastic in nature. And step one, build a great product. But 
not having that intimate knowledge of who they're selling to and who is uh, actually the true target market, how they behave, what they spend on, where they spend their free time, what their average salaries are, to really get this holistic view of who their target customer is, that becomes more and more obvious as this brand you know, attempts to communicate with them or as they roll out new products that don't buy with the true customer. And it's just a slippery slope. That mistake compounds dramatically. And again, even if you have a great product, your brand voice, ethos, your you know, everything you everything you do really speaks to how well you know your customer. And so that is first and foremost something I love to really get to the bottom of when I meet a new founder is how well he or she knows their target customer base. Of course, it helps if they are the uh, you know, someone if they are that target market uh, themselves. You know, you hear great founding stories of people trying to solve problems that they've confronted in their own personal lives, but that's not always the case. And so, even so, would would really stress that as a very important part, um, something that should be addressed very early on. Speak to as many people before you go live and launch. And iterate and really test, see not only where your voice is resonating, doing the best, also in how that target market uh, grows over time. Perfect. I, I love that. And I think Blue Apron is actually a great example of that, where they really blew up. They went public. We saw their stock drop quite a bit. COVID helped save them a little bit, but their target audience initially was everybody who eats, which is obviously not the case. And then they realized there was a lot of empty nesters and um, people in college or just fresh out of college, the people that actually want the food there delivered for them. So on that note, um, very happy to bring on Yulitsa Jean Charles. Uh, she is the founder and creative director for Healthy Roots Dolls. She can tell you more. Um, they're a toy company that creates dolls and storybooks that empower young girls uh, and represents the beauty and diversity. And actually, she just shared a, a great video recently where she won the Quick Loans Detroit Demo Day for over 125K. And so she's uh, not a rookie at, at what we're about to do here. And it was pretty cool to see one of her tweets recently go viral. She actually had almost a, a million likes, which is pretty insane. To me, it seems like that would break Twitter. And <laughs> now her dolls are completely sold out. So on that note, welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. Can you guys hear me? Yeah, we can hear you great. Perfect. Um, yeah, so I mean... No, no, go for it. I was just say this is the first time we've done the pitch. And so we're going to be kind of all learning here together. So I appreciate you, you know, raising your hand and, and joining us for this. This is great. So yeah, if you want to tell us your yeah. story and then, you know, you and Mike can go back and forth and, and I get to sit here and eat my Verb Energy bar and, and watch. So Multicultural Children's Product Company, Healthy Roots Dolls. I started it with our first doll, which is a line of dolls that focus on teaching girls to love their curls because I never had a doll like that growing up. Uh, it was specifically born out of my experiences when one of my fondest memories was sitting between my mom's legs as she was washing and styling my hair. And when she was done, I would feel like this beautiful princess. But as I got older, I started to feel less like that princess and more like a pumpkin. And I realized that was a shared experience for a lot of girls like me. So in the United States, more than 50% of children in the, U in the US are of color, and only four out of 10 girls love their curls, and 65% of the world's population has curly or wavy hair. As a children's illustrator, I know that toys influence how kids think, act, and see themselves. So when little girls can't find dolls that look like them, it negatively impacts their self-esteem. So that's why I created Zoe, the first Healthy Roots doll, and the first doll that teaches natural hair care. Because while there are black dolls, you have to do so much more than paint a doll brown in order to connect with children of color. So Zoe's hair is specially designed 
to be washed and styled just like real hair. So you can box braid it. You can do these beautiful curls that I have here. She's created a really fun experience for children. We launched her in partnership with Procter & Gamble's My Black is Beautiful in October of 2019. So she came with a curl care kit featuring five full-size hair care products that kids could use on the doll and on themselves. And we acquired thousands of new customers and are currently sold out because of this amazing partnership and our own marketing efforts. So currently, um, we recently experienced a tremendous uh, increase in demand and uh, eyeballs on us. We had already sold out two weeks ago, but then three days after we sold out, I was just tweeting to tweet, you know, doing my general marketing thing and sharing my brand. And I'm on this air mattress and then this tweet just starts doing numbers. And I'm like, okay, I'm really glad that I set up the website literally three days ago to take pre-orders because we would not be capitalizing on this opportunity right now. And so the tweet really struck a chord with people because I felt like our brand has been positioned, particularly during this time, to be positive and to be something that people can look towards as having an impact for children because we are talking about race, we are talking about identity, and people are looking for opportunities to invest in children's development. So seeing that this isn't a niche product, but this is a product that all children can benefit from, which is what I've always believed Healthy Roots Dolls is. And so while we are starting with this one doll, we are ultimately building a lifestyle brand around our characters, around the experiences we're creating for children to represent kids from around the world and bringing diversity to the toil. So we're starting with dolls, but we can make so many other products from there. So we are currently raising, we're currently hiring, we're doing all the things that startups do when you increase, when you experience high demand, we're doing our next production run, we have thousands of pre-orders, and we have lots of things to look forward to and new opportunities based on the leads that we've gotten from the viral tweet. And that is my business and where we are. That is awesome. And I'll let Mike jump on in. Well, it's, a, it's lovely to meet you. It's uh, great to hear your vision and congrats to all your early success thus far. It's, it's truly phenomenal. Thank you. As we kind of run a simulation and kind of kind of give the audience a feel for the kinds of questions that one would ask when considering investing in a business like yours, I think, and we spoke about this topic earlier before you signed on, but can you give us kind of a, a, a deeper dive and a better understanding as to uh, who the customer is, you know, both on the child front as well as the parent and the person you're yeah. going to, right? So what kind of challenges, uh, what kind of voids in the you know, available products in the market today, what kind of behaviors, what kind of you know, psychology surrounds this, uh, this youth, uh, et cetera. We'd, we'd love to hear that. So when I first started to solve this problem, I thought I was solving it for me, you know, people that look like me. And then I realized, well, I don't have kids, so I can't really relate to parents struggling to find products for them. And I'm also not a child, so I don't really know what kids are experiencing when it comes to playing with toys. So we are speaking to parents and speaking to that pain point of looking for representational products for your kids, but then designing for children to create that product that they can see themselves in and play with. And so what I thought our initial audience was going to be would be primarily, you know, African-Americans in the United States. But what I found was, wow, we have a lot of grandparents buying this. We have a lot of aunties. We have a lot of white parents with mixed race or adopted children of color. And now we just have, you know, generally everyone buying it because it's a cute doll that any child can love. So that's what we've discovered while we've grown the business. Because we started on Kickstarter. We did $50,000 in pre-sales. And so we could see our Kickstarter audience in a Facebook group. And I was like, this is a lot of you know, different people than I anticipated. And so now we can understand that we need to be speaking toward to parents and they, what the values that they are looking for in products that they're purchasing and then designing that experience for the children. That's fantastic. Love that. I think great follow-up question to that. 
would be what kind of purchase patterns have you been seeing in these uh, in the early days? I mean, if you think of a doll that's priced around anything over 50 bucks, I believe your, your price point's around 70 something. Is what you're seeing um, any, any repeat order behavior amongst your customer base? So that's interesting. We, so I have mentors in the toy industry, Deborah Sterling from Goldie Blocks, Massing Clark from build bear And what I generally understood was you're going to see 80% of your sales in Q4 for the holiday season, which was true. But then I didn't anticipate seeing people buying more than one doll. And the people who are buying more than one doll, they're emailing us and telling us that they're buying more than one for the children in their lives. So it's the grandmothers, the aunties, people who are donating it to programs. Um, so those are the, the repeat purchases that we're seeing. We haven't introduced other product SKUs yet, but we'll see how our like our customer lifetime value increases as we introduce accessories, as we introduce books and like matching outfits. So how many of those thousands of customers we already have are going to come back and expand on that experience? Got it. Got it. And so like another thing that I focus on at Lead Commerce Ventures that uh, the group has, has now been fully caught up on is the whole world of commerce infrastructure. And oftentimes when I speak to very successful founders that have you know, experienced a viral moment, much like yours, they typically see a very fast uptick in demand. And the tools that you put in place within the tech stack of your business really, really sets the foundation for how well you scale. So with that in mind, I think it'd be great for the audience as well to hear for what kind of tools, uh, what kind of commerce infrastructure you're plugging into your tech stack. For example, ShipBob become the gold standard for logistics and inventory management. You're seeing a lot of conversational commerce tools come out that allow uh, founders and businesses to engage with their audience in a much more intimate way, different alternative distribution platforms. And so... To what extent have you begun to explore different commerce infrastructure tools that you're plugging into your operations to scale efficiently and prepare for that demand? So I think the one thing people don't know about my business is that I'm a solo founder. And so that tech stack that you're describing was very, very important for me to begin automating and having things manage itself. So we use ShipBob for our fulfillment, which automatically integrates with Shopify. But then on Shopify, literally just this morning, I had somebody who had like 20 years of experience in the toy industry talk about how properly set up our website is to take customer orders. It's like, we have our integration with Klaviyo so that we can capture emails on the landing page. We have our retargeting ads set up on Facebook and for Instagram so that if you visit our website, we have your data, we track you all over the place using platforms like Gorgeous to handle customer tickets and having my customer service team, you know, having these automated uh, responses and being able to use ShipBob to check on orders in the back end and checking Shopify. What else do we use? We use a rewards program. So Shopify has tons of apps and integrations for us to capitalize on the eyeballs that we're getting on our website and make sure that we're capturing as many leads as possible. So those are the, some of the tools that we're using I'm going to jump in now. real quick because we have a from the audience as well. And then we can get back to Michael. So from uh, Malaika, can you tell us um, more about the beginning of how you managed to create a prototype and help understand the manufacturing costs and how you initially Ooh. created the hype? Yeah. So I went to art school. I went to the Rhode Island School of Design specifically, which is basically funnels people to Hasbro. And so I was in an, uh, an incubator program kind of on col- in college in, at Brown University through the, the relationship of the sister schools. And that was called the Social Innovation Fellowship. So they gave me $4,000 to work on the company 
during the summer. And then from there, I got into Mass Challenge Accelerator Program. And because I was in that ecosystem, I was able to connect with people in the industry I needed to be in and learn from them. Like, okay, you work at Hasbro, you work in product development. How do I make a doll? But I was able to use my design experience to sculpt the first prototype and then find someone to do the 3D modeling. And then through my network, building relationships to find a factory to ultimately produce our first doll. But in order to get the capital to get that started, even though I was in the, the startup ecosystem in Boston, people didn't take me seriously. You know, this is niche. This isn't, there isn't really a, this isn't really a problem. Like, how are you going to solve this? So I used Kickstarter to get that initial capital. And so we've always been very active on social media. I've always been telling my story. I've always been actively engaging people with our brand online for the past five years. So it wasn't an overnight success. We have been and building this audience how were, and I mean, this demand. Like you were active on social and telling your story, but 50,000 on, on Kickstarter is rather impressive. Like how, how'd you, how were you able to start generating some of that? So the thing about Kickstarter is like people like people would email me and be like, so I'm planning to launch my Kickstarter next month. And I'm like, no, you're not. You're not doing it next month. That's not realistic. So we worked on our Kickstarter nine months before we launched it. And the thing that I tell people is like, you need to know where your money's coming from before you actually launch it. Cause those first 24 hours is crucial. I don't know how Kickstarter works now, but that was, that was it back in the day. So I did a lot of guerrilla marketing. We were discovering our audience and going and, and literally getting people to sign up for our email list on paper so that we could keep them engaged throughout the year up until we launched our Kickstarter campaign. And then also tapping my network and like, who do you know at, at Essence? Who do you know at this publication that could write about us the week of? And we actually didn't reach our goal until about the third week of our campaign because we got that last minute awesome. press so push. I've got a bunch more questions, but I'll, I'll throw it back to, back to Michael. Yeah, look, it's, you know, for especially this audience that we have here in front of us, I think it's um, very useful to hear from you any horror stories of, uh, you know, the early days and conceptualizing the business, going live, selling your first couple orders, receiving the feedback, etc. What the hell went wrong? Tell us about it. Uh, we'd love to hear. So the first batch of dolls post Kickstarter um, that we had delivered in 2018, I was using a fulfillment company that was drop shipping them from Hong Kong and, you know, customers orders were getting damaged. And I was like, I can't, I can't keep replacing dolls. I can't do this anymore. So I was like, ship them to me, send them to my house. So I had a broker handle like, you know, going through the ports and then putting it on a truck. And I was like, oh yeah, it's like 50 boxes. No big deal. A truck pulls up in front of my apartment street. And I was like, that's a big truck. Um, so I immediately had to call a friend like, Hey, so I had these 50 boxes. I had to get into my apartment. So I had 50 boxes of dolls. I had products from partners that we were working with during that holiday season. I had to do kidding. I had to like fold the box. I did not know that cardboard dries your hands out. It's really bad. You guys, but I shipped every single doll that Christmas. And so I learned that, you know what? Shipping and logistics are not my strengths. So let me find a fulfillment that partner awesome. that can do this for I love me. The, the early stage, the early stage stories. You mentioned adding on additional products, some of the accessories from, let's say, hairbrushes to clothing that they can wear. Because something I'm, I'm very bullish on is just because a lot of my backgrounds have been in like software. And so it's all around subscription. And so when these D2C brands can crack into that just no-brainer subscription model, which sounds like yours really lends itself to, it's, it's so exciting. So what are some of the things, I guess, first with getting the Zoe doll back in stock, if you can share a little bit more there. And then also just some of the things you have that you're envisioning for what, what the future you know, product line will look like. 
So future product line, I'll come back to that. I'm not sure how much my PR agency would want me to share, but in terms of getting the Zoe doll back in stock, right now we have a lot of demand and we had a specific number of units that we were gonna bring in for Christmas, but now I have to look at the trajectory, like, okay, if we keep going at this pace, we won't have enough dolls for Christmas. So how much should we increase our order size by? And with this round that we're raising, now that we have this demand, should we try to introduce even more products for this holiday season? So within the pipeline, we definitely have, you know, the accessories, the outfits. We have a salon chair. I can say that. But in the future, we do have other characters that we want to introduce because there are people who are asking for, I want a doll that looks like this or I want a doll that looks like this. But in addition to that, we also have the opportunity to sell globally because we had so many people all over the world asking for us to ship to them, most specifically that I noticed um, South Africa, Brazil and Canada. So there's opportunities for Here's us to introduce products more there More of a well. chat instead of a question. Chris, he says, as somebody who ran a successful Kickstarter campaign without outside help, he can verify that um, what Yulitsa said is is still prevalent today. I actually don't fully understand the, the question here, but something that she does mention is the unique niche, more like never done before products. And so Yulitsa, it sounds like that's something that you had mm -hmm. to overcome early on where, you know, this that's why you brought it to market was because you're like, I want this. I wanted this as a child. I want this today. And this did not exist. And so... How did you overcome that and, and kind of go through like the education process for prospective customers as well? So overcoming that was basically the Kickstarter campaign. I would not be doing this company if I did not have motivation outside of my own will to create it. So the fact that we were winning pitch competitions and that was how we mostly funded it, the fact that we got investors. I really was able to grow the company through an incubator program that I went through in Durham, North Carolina called the Startup Stampede through the American underground. And they really showed me like, this is how you define your audience. This is how you create ad campaigns and, you know, target specific interests. They even gave me capital to test it. So once I did that for our first holiday season and I could see, and I could pinpoint the people that would be purchasing, that's how I was able to, you know, this isn't a niche. There are people here and we're going to grow this even more with more products. That's awesome. And, and what about with your, with your product? Cause you know, we did talk about from the manufacturing side of it and getting that first prototype, you know, cause when I, I see a product, when I see a lot of physical products out there, I'm like, okay, how did they even go about creating that first one? And then you think of what that costs and then what your, you know, your total cogs are and what you're going to sell that for. And, and with something like yours, maybe it's the packaging component as well. And then like the whole delivery experience. And so again, as, as a sole founder, how did you approach that just to make sure that, you know, you were building this long-term sustainable business? So one of the principles that we learned at RISD is measure twice, cut once. <laughs> the, like I had $50,000 and there was never going to be another $50,000. So I'm going to do my due diligence. I'm going to like get approval first. I'm going to make sure this is what I actually want before I pull the trigger on ordering this packaging. Like I need samples, send me a video, physically mail it to me. So I never really did anything until I was certain, which is why it took me two years to develop the first product. But once I got to a point where I was like more comfortable and I had more capital, I was able to hire people with more expertise. So one of the things that I tell people is like, you need to know what you know and you need to know what you don't know. And then you got to go find the people that know those things and know that you have to spend money in order to make money and you have to pay for their expertise. So I, I always end with, with the same question every week. But before we get there, Yulitsa, any questions that you have for Michael? I have a list. So my company recently went viral. What are three, you know, three things that we could do right now to capitalize on the opportunity and the new audience? Well, it's really a, a true blessing to have an engaged audience ready to consume whatever you put out, whether it's a product or whether it's any sort of 
episodic content or any blog content, even I think with your audience, you know, primed and ready to engage and to consume, I think this is the perfect time not only to be taking orders, but also to be putting out um, additional content and things that speak to your brand and your ethos and your vision, because you know for certain that there's a higher chance of it being consumed effectively right now. That's number one, capitalize on this, not in terms of just taking orders. I would say number two, again, I see in almost every case that putting the commerce infrastructure in place is always reactive, right? They wait until they raise considerable money so they can spend on these kinds of things. But you've spoken, you were really well to some of the tools that you have in place, but it'll become very obvious, like what additional expertise that you need to pay for or outsource in the form of a subscription to a third-party vendor. And I would quickly plan out what those things are and put them in place as soon as possible. And I think, you know, third, really, really enjoy this <laughs> because, you know, I, as a founder myself, who's, you know, left a, a very, uh, you know, prestigious group to start my own from scratch, it can be very tough, especially being a solo founder, a solo partner like myself. I certainly feel your plight. But uh, you got to enjoy these moments. I think what's happened uh, with you on social media and the early fantastic reception that you've had, really enjoy it because not every founder gets to enjoy what you're going through right now. So really soak it all in, learn from it. At the end of the day, cheers yourself because it sounds like you've been doing incredibly well. I haven't really processed anything. I think my way of celebrating my wins is like eating ice cream almost every night, but um, I should probably enjoy it a little bit more than that. Anything, try a different flavor or something. Um, (laughs) So we do have a higher price point. What are your thoughts on maintaining a luxury price point versus, you know, figuring out whether it's volume wise, how to lower your price or introducing a lower price alternative? If you talk to uh, the only Webb Smith, he'll, he'll tell you about a concept called a Veblen brand and essentially one that defies economic law, right? As price increases, so does demand. And I think what you have is kind of conceptually um, something that represents a Veblen brand. And so I would certainly maintain that price point. Again, it's warranted, uh, I'm sure, in many ways. I, I don't know your margins, but uh, you set it for a reason. You know, stick to that. Don't discount. Uh, don't do seasonal sales for unnecessary purposes. It might be tempting, but maintain that brand image by being, you know, holding strong on on the price that you set. I think that'll pay dividends in the end, um, as opposed to people shopping only when you offer discounts. On top of that, yes, it might be a higher price product and you might get lower order frequency. But then again, if your economics are all sorted out and you've been pulling the right levers to get uh, to a profitable transaction, then that can be okay. And again, like we mentioned earlier, I'm sure there's a whole additional product rollout, uh, a product map that you have in place that you've envisioned. You capture more time, lifetime value, smaller, cheap, complementary products that you can roll out that revolve uh, around the, the core anchor product. But um, Look, you set that price for a reason. Stick to it. Like feedback from your from your audience and your customer base. But again, um, believe in, in that product. And uh, I really don't think it's a problem. There's more information on, on Veblen brands. And really, some of the best brands I've invested in, been affiliated with, Tracksmith is another great example. Like These are all brands that have withstanded different uh, ebbs and flows in consumer demand because their brand image is tied so strongly to their their price. And 
it's allowed them to be uh, you know, resistant to certain other factors. But that's how I think about it. Set your price, maintain your margins, maintain your healthy unit economics, and continue on. That's great. So again, thank you both for joining us. Michael, huge for jumping on last minute. Uh, Yulitsa, thank you for bringing the, the first one to join for the pitch and with all internet fun that both uh, that, that we all had. So um, my last question I always end on before I, before I get there, again, just want to thank everybody in the audience as well. I know your time is extremely valuable. There's a lot of stuff you can do. So appreciate you guys joining us here. We're here every Wednesday, three o'clock Eastern time. So my last question is, if you had one piece of advice to give to entrepreneurs today, what would that be? Mine is probably something that uh, your loved one, parents, and your friends probably tell you every day, which is don't quit. There's a great book I recommend all e-commerce founders read. It's called The Billion Dollar Brand Club, I believe, by um, Lawrence uh, Ingracia or something like that. And it'll basically recount all the early stories of some of the e-commerce legends, uh, Warby Parker, Dollar Shave Club, etc., and you'll find, surprisingly, that your early days are not much different than theirs. And it's the ones that made, that persevered and um, didn't quit. So that's really what sets, in my view, as an investor and seeing so many businesses, what sets the ones that succeed and the ones that don't. It's just perseverance. That's pretty much it. Love it. Com- completely agree. Don't quit. Perseverance. And so if you didn't hear you, let's our, our final question. What's the number one piece of advice you'd give to entrepreneurs today? I have two pieces of advice. The first piece is do not say no before you can say yes. It's very easy to tell yourself something is not doable or that an opportunity doesn't exist. If I almost did that myself, but if I hadn't seen the email and had the conversation with the director of the program, I would have told myself my company is not possible to create. And then the second piece of advice is how I basically make all my decisions in life. And it's from my friend in college who said, there are three steps to doing anything, figure out what you want to do, figure out how to do it, and then you do it. That's it. Love it. Great way to go out. Can't top that. So again, thank you, everybody. And we will see you next week. Thank you so much, everyone. Bye.